Thank you for joining us at the Boulder Church service online today to worship and praise God. I would like to thank Pastor Jennifer Ogden for inviting me to bring the message today. And also, happy 4th of July, Independence Day, a national holiday. Fireworks, parades, barbecues, and picnics. But this day is so much more than the things we associate with the 4th of July. It was on this day, 244 years ago, that something momentous happened in this world. Let me read it as it was written. In Congress, July 4th, 1776, the unanimous declaration of the 13 United States of America. When in the course of human events, it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bands which have connected them to another and to assume among the powers of the earth the separate and equal station to which the laws of nature and nature's God entitle them, a decent respect to the opinions of mankind requires that they should declare the causes which impel them to the separation. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed, that whenever any form of government becomes destructive of these ends, it is the right of the people to alter or to abolish it, and to institute the new government. Continuing on, they, they continue, we therefore, the representatives of the United States of America in general Congress, assembled and appealing to the supreme judge of the world for the rectitude of our intentions do in name and by authority of the good people of these colonies solemnly publish and declare further on they state and for the support of this declaration with a firm reliance on the protection of divine providence we mutually pledge to each other our lives our fortunes and our sacred honor these people were committing themselves, committing themselves to the Declaration of Independence. That declaration included these three major ideas. People have certain unalienable rights, including life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. All men are created equal, and individuals have a civic duty to defend these rights for themselves and for others. This is a great vision statement, a lofty goal, not fully achieved in the last 244 years, but worthy of effort, even now, worthy of striving for, worthy of committing 100% to the vision, even if you fall short, as well we have over these past two centuries. Two other men, Moses and Aaron, were committed to obeying God and freeing their people, and this second sermon in the series, Egypt to Canaan, is on the plagues. I began looking at the plagues and wondered how I would make the Exodus plagues relevant to today. Hello, March 2020, and hello, COVID-19. And now, 
we can all better understand the idea of plagues. For the last four months, we, the Boulder Church, our vocations, our communities, our nation, and our world have been in the midst of a pandemic, a plague that has killed 1,700 people in the state of Colorado and 125,000 in the United States. That is more people dead than live in the city of Boulder. This pandemic has disrupted life and commerce and created social and political turmoil. So as we look at Exodus chapters 7 through 13, the plagues, the first thing in order to understand the plagues, we have to understand that God is answering a question that Pharaoh asked. Here's Pharaoh's question, and I would say it's also the question through the ages up till today. Exodus 5.2 says, But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? This is a very modern question. Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice? It's a question Pharaoh asked. It's a question we ask. It's a question our culture asks. It's interesting to to note about Pharaoh that he is in the same space we are. He lived in a pluralistic culture, which means it's not offensive to Pharaoh that the Hebrews have a God and that God has spoken to them. That's not offensive at all. In fact, Egypt had 114 gods that they worshiped. And listen, even now that's true. We live in a pluralistic society. It's not offensive to believe in God. Our hearts hunger for something sacred that the secular cannot provide. The reality of the world is that you and I inhabit is the same world that Pharaoh inhabited. What is offensive is that God has some sort of authority over him. It's the same thing we and the world struggle with. It's not a problem to believe in God unless you're proclaiming God tells me how to live my life. If there's one thing we cannot tolerate, it's some deity impinging on our freedoms and our desires. Pharaoh struggled with it because he thought he was a god. Who is this god to tell me what to do? For I am god. We struggle with it because we live in a day and age that is post-truth. Post-truth is relating to or denoting circumstances in which objective facts are less influential in shaping public opinion than appeals to emotion and personal belief. It doesn't matter what your facts are or if I choose what makes are if I get to choose what makes me happy. There is no truth except what makes me happy. There is no authority but my authority. That's post-truth. Now take that to logical conclusions, and it's anarchy. But most of us live in this space. While we would never admit we do, we do live in a pluralistic society, and we do lean that way. Sure, there's a God, and God is awesome. People believe in God as long as God doesn't get into their sacred space. Lord, you just shouldn't meddle in these spaces. But the Lord doesn't play games with his people. It's just not how he works. 
Many of us, instead of submission to the God of the Bible, are far, far more apt to believe some kind of moralistic, man-centered nonsense of our day. Instead of the Sermon on the Mount, we prefer the poem Invictus by William Ernst Henley, which reads, it matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am master of my fate. I am captain of my soul. We love that stuff. I am master of my fate, the captain of my soul. It's this idea that I'm enough. I can do it. Now the reality is that I'm not master of anything. That is an overestimation of our ability to pull things off especially at the deeper levels of meaning and existence. Yes, you can work hard and get a nice car. That doesn't make you master of your fate. It just means you've got a nice car. You can work hard to live in the neighborhood you desire, but that doesn't make you captain of your ship, captain of your soul. Yes, you can get six-pack abs by extreme exercise and eating right, but you're still gonna die. But now, God in his mercy is going to step into this space. He's going to step into this question. Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice? Today, there are areas of our lives that we know Jesus is leading us toward obedience. We have our heels dug in. We are asking Pharaoh's question via justification, doubt, via all sorts of other things. Who is the Lord that I should obey him? Well, the Lord in his mercy steps into that space and answers Pharaoh's question. He answers it for all of Egypt and Pharaoh, and he answers it for us. The first three plagues, blood, frogs, and gnats, encompass all of Egypt and also include the children of Israel. The first plague, Moses strikes the waters in the Nile and they turn into blood. The Nile stinks, the fish die, and the Egyptians could not drink the water from the Nile. But Pharaoh's magicians did the same and he would not listen to the Lord. So the Egyptians dug along the Nile for water to drink. Seven full days passed after the Lord had struck the Nile. You need to remember that the Nile and the Nile Basin were the center of economic power and vitality in Egypt. In fact, the Egyptians had multiple gods over the Nile that they sacrificed and prayed to. Because as the Nile goes, so Egypt goes. All their power, might, and wealth was caught up in the Nile. And the primary god of the Nile was a goddess called Happy, who provided fullness of life. Now there's a base instinct in every human being. We want the good life. But God in his mercy is revealing that Pharaoh and the Egyptians are worshiping what is false. He exposes it for the lie that it is. The reality is that the fullness of life that you and I desire is only found in Jesus. You can be an unbeliever and have a good life, but you will not have life as God designed it at the deepest possible level outside of being reconciled to our Creator. Jesus says, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. Jesus reveals to us where we have believed in false idols, where we have trusted other things to lead us 
into the best life possible. And God in his mercy shows us, you need me. You don't need this thing. We think this house, car, or place will satisfy us in ways it cannot. We've been exposed. We have trusted in something for fullness of life that cannot bring any life. And we read in the narrative of the first plague that all the water turned to blood everywhere. I can't even imagine how we would respond to that. Most people won't lower themselves to drink tap water. They say, what's this? Is it filtered? Well, no, it's from the tap. What? Are we animals? Pharaoh's heart grew hard because he learned he could just dig a ditch and get some water out of a ditch alongside the Nile. Wow. So let's make do rather than commit to obeying God. Let's settle for life, but not a full joyful life. Let's drink dirty ditch water instead of the abundant living waters offered through Jesus. We get exposed for pursuing the wrong things. God lays us bare, calls us to himself, but we respond, oh, that would require complete surrender. Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice? I don't know if that I can go all in. So the Nile is restored and the second plague arrives, frogs. A familiar exchange happens throughout the story of the plagues. It's thus says the Lord, let my people go that they may serve me. The frogs come up from the Nile where they were worshiped as Heket, the God of fruitfulness, and they infested everything. Pharaoh said, plead with the Lord to take away the frogs. Moses said, be it as you say, so that you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God. But when Pharaoh saw that there was relief, he hardened his heart. Just as the Lord had said, frogs equal hequit, which equals fruitfulness. You see, God in his mercy knows that the only fruit we can bear with our lives that lasts and is eternal is the fruit born out of complete obedience and surrender to God in Christ. In the third plague, the dust of the earth become gnats in all the land of Egypt. The magicians tried by their secret arts to produce gnats, but they could not. So they said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. This was also an assault on another Egyptian god. But more than anything, it was an assault on the pride of Egypt and their ability to live lives of comfort and ease. Think of our imagery of the Egyptians. We always see them lounging around. They had an attitude of, we are the most powerful nation the world has ever known. We provide comfort and peace. Boy, does that ring a bell? Well, there is nothing that can destroy comfort and peace like gnats. With gnats, God is revealing to the Egyptians that no amount of wealth or might can bring comfort to the soul. Only the creator of the soul can comfort. Flash forward to us and an interview with Tom Brady. He's sitting on the bed in a hotel room talking about winning another Super Bowl. He thinks, is this it? I just won another Super Bowl. I'm married to a supermodel. I'm worth millions and millions of dollars. 
He doesn't live like you and I. How can the very rich be miserable? Just get whatever you, you want. You don't even have to think, can I afford that? You can. Eat what you want and have it prepared by special chefs. You have access to everything. What's your favorite restaurant in New York? Well, hop in your G5 and go. That's what billionaires do, and many are miserable. How is that possible? Because the comfort our soul hungers for can only be given by the creator of our soul. Here's what we know about the world in which we live. We're more sleepless, stressed, and anxious than we've ever been. For all our air conditioning, space-age beds, pillows, chiropractors, and massages, we're a people who are unsettled and anxious. The gnats are exposing the impossibility of man to comfort the deepest parts of man. No amount of vacationing, money, or stuff can bring, bring comfort, the comfort our souls hunger for, real peace, Real comfort will only be found in full surrender to Jesus Christ. Full surrender, one day at a time, one moment at a time, one hour at a time, one event at a time, one decision at a time. Moving on, the, the gnats are not gone, but here comes the fourth plague, flies. But the important change here is but on that day, I will set apart the land of Goshen, where my people dwell, so no swarms of flies shall be there, that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. In many of the plagues, you will see some variation of the sentence, so you might know that I am the Lord, in answer to Pharaoh's question, who is the Lord, that I should obey his voice. And God puts a division between his people and the Egyptians. Finally, Pharaoh agrees that they can sacrifice, but it must be within Egypt. Moses responds, the offerings we sacrifice to the Lord our God are an abomination to the Egyptians. You see, God requires complete surrender. The demand on Pharaoh is to let the people of God go into the wilderness, and Pharaoh counteroffers. Go ahead, make sacrifice to your God, but do it here. God, doesn't not, God does not negotiate. He is sovereign. We must go three days journey into the wilderness and sacrifice to the Lord our God as he tells us. Again, Pharaoh counters. I will let you go sacrifice to the Lord your God, only don't go far away. So the Lord did as Moses asked and removed the swarms of flies from Egypt, but Pharaoh did not let the people go. The fifth plague kills all the livestock, but the Lord made a distinction between the livestock of Israel and the livestock of Egypt, so that no animals belonging to the people of Israel died, and yet Pharaoh's heart was unyielding. Immediately, the sixth plague arrives, boils. The Lord said, take handfuls of soot from the kiln and let Moses throw the soot into the air. It shall become fine dust over all the land of Egypt. 
and become boils breaking out in sores on man and beast throughout the land of Egypt. Yeah, the word is kilns. The kilns where the children of Israel toiled as slaves to make bricks for Egyptian glory. Moses threw the soot into the air and it became boils breaking out in sores on man and beast. Moses told Pharaoh the seventh plague, hail will come next. The destructive hail struck down everything in the field in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, only in the land of Goshen where the people of Israel were. There was no hail. Pharaoh admits, finally, I and my people have sinned and are in the wrong. The Lord is right. But when the storms ended, his heart hardened. The eighth plague of locusts is so that the Lord may show miracles among them, so that the Israelites may tell their sons and grandsons how God dealt with the Egyptians, and so they may know that I am is the Lord. This is interesting. God is saying that his actions are not only a judgment on the people of Egypt, but are also meant to embolden Israel in their confidence in the God they serve. In the generations to come, they would remember the power of God on their behalf and be rooted in the goodness and kindness of their God. He is saying, you're gonna tell your sons and your grandsons how I, with mighty power, delivered you from bondage, slavery, oppression, and injustice. So Pharaoh said to them, go, serve the Lord your God. But which ones are to go? And again, Pharaoh counteroffers and hardens once more. God says, I want full obedience. And we respond, well, we appreciate what you're doing in the world with all your kindness and goodness, but if I give full obedience, it's not going to be a good economic decision for me. People will think I'm a weirdo. So how about I do this? And we send back a counteroffer to God, just as Pharaoh did. Now the ninth plague is darkness. I do not know how that was accomplished, but for three days the Egyptians had darkness and the children of Israel had light. Pharaoh called Moses and said, go, serve the Lord. Your little ones may also go with you. Only let your flocks and your herds remain behind. When Pharaoh says, go, but don't take your animals, Moses responds, but we don't know exactly where we're going to do, what we're going to do when we get there. So we have to take everything because we don't know what God is going to ask of us. So today, don't feel overly concerned if the Lord is asking you to take steps of faith and you're not sure how it's going to play out. This is how God has always dealt with his people. Nobody gets the full plan right before them. Finally, the last plague is on the firstborn. We all know the story. Faithful Hebrews took a spotless lamb, slaughtered it at midnight, and marked their doors with its blood. That night, the angel of death passed throughout Egypt killing the firstborn child of every household that didn't have blood on the doorframe. Heartbroken, Pharaoh told the Israelites to go. They were finally set free, and the Spirit of God led the people out 
and toward the promised land. But Pharaoh's grief soon turned to rage. Pharaoh's heart remained as hard as stone. In fact, what Pharaoh shows us is that human nature doesn't have a tendency to change at all. In answering the question of, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice? God's response is, the Lord is the true God. The Lord is the mighty creator. The Lord is a just judge. And the Lord is a gracious savior. So who is the Lord that I should obey his voice? The Lord is the true God, the mighty creator, the just judge, and a gracious savior. That is our Lord. God did indeed draw his people out of bondage, out of darkness, and into the light of his presence. The story of Israel is ours today. We are God's people. He draws us out of our sin, our Egypt, and draws us into his presence, into relationship with Jesus. Perhaps we are worshiping false gods even today. The gods we may worship are comfort, power, and control. They're not golden images in our homes. Instead, they're cars and neighborhoods, people we try to dominate and limit, and on and on. We're not better than these people. We are these people. The people of God endured the first three plagues just the same as the Egyptians. And starting with the fourth plague through the Passover plague, God puts a hedge of protection around his people. But here's the question, why? Are the Israelites better than the Egyptians? Are they pure? Are they more righteous? Have they pursued the Lord with more vigor? The answer from the text is most assuredly, no, they're not. In fact, they are a stiff-necked, foolish people that God loves, as we will see as this series continues. So let's finish with a discussion on commitment and go back to the Declaration of Independence. Have you ever wondered what about the 56 men who signed the Declaration of Independence? Well, two later became presidents of the United States. One was the father of an American president, but five signers were captured by the British as traitors. Twelve had their homes ransacked and burned. Two lost sons serving in the army, and another two had sons captured. Nine fought and died from wounds or hardships during the war. When they signed the declaration, they pledged their lives, their fortunes, and their sacred honor, and many gave up everything. So what kind of men were they? Well, two were only 26 when they signed. The other signers were in their 40s and 50s. 24 of them were lawyers and jurists. 11 were merchants and nine were farmers, men of means, well-educated. But they signed the Declaration of Independence knowing full well the penalty could be death if they were captured. We didn't just fight the British. We were British subjects at the time. We fought our own government. It was a level of commitment and deep belief that led 56 men to sign a treasonous petition declaring war on their own government. There is a phrase, burn the ships, that comes from the Spanish explorer Cortez. 
When Cortez and his men arrived on the shores of an unknown land, he rallied his men, uttering these three words that changed the course of history, burn the ships. They had no choice. It was succeed or die. Their ships were burned. They had no way to go back. The only way was forward. The burn the ship level of motivation and commitment takes away your crutches and excuses and burns the ships that are keeping you from knowing who God is and why you should obey him. Identify and burn the ships in your life that are keeping you from making Jesus full stop, all. The phrase all in began as an expression meaning to be inexhausted, worn out, spent. And in the game of poker, it refers to the moment when the player bets all their chips on a single hand. You've wagered all you've got and you can't back out. The only way to live boldly is to be all in because all in moments change the future. There are many all in moments in the Bible, but I'm going to finish with the most important all in moment in all of history. Jesus was all in at the Garden of Gethsemane, staring into the black abyss of eternal separation from his Father, but being committed to their plan of salvation he utters, not my will, Father, but yours. The entire Christian faith is anchored to that all-in statement. I'm here before you today because of that all-in statement uttered 2,000 years ago. I think there are many who are anchored to that moment when God chose us and gave up glory to save us. So is it time in the midst of this pandemic with all the social distancing and all the social unrest in the midst of our own pluralistic, materialistic and anxiety troubled world? Is it time to burn the ships and go all in to know who God is and that his plan includes us? It is time today to make Jesus all.